Hello and welcome to the Pandemic Policies premiere episode. Today's host is Rachel Dolly, introducing us to Dr. Deborah Stein to talk about the environmental groups, renewable energy, and the importance of innovation in our future. everyone. Uh, I'm Rachel Dolly here on the Pandemic Eco-Policy podcast, the podcast that talks about the environment in terms of COVID. I'm proud to be hosting our first episode today where we're going to be talking about exactly what the relationship is between the pandemic and the environment, how it's going to affect our future, and why you should even care. Uh, I'm joined here today by Dr. Deborah Stein. It's uh, great to have you here. Thank you. Do you mind giving everyone a brief introduction of yourself, what you do? Well, uh, today I'm an independent consultant, but before this, I spent most of my career in uh, Washington, D.C., and um, I was at the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and I did uh, a number of reports, you know, related to energy uh, and the environment while I was there, so I was there for 18 years. Then I went to the Congressional Research Service, which is a think tank for Congress. And I worked on science, technology, innovation policy, as well as energy and the environment. And then I went to the uh, White House and I was under the, uh, in, in the first three years of the Obama administration. And I was uh, executive director of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. I then came to Carnegie Mellon, uh, where I was a professor of the practice in the engineering public policy department. and. Uh, I decided I liked Pittsburgh so much, I decided to stay when I left. Ah, oh, that sounds great. Uh, so you obviously have a lot of expertise in the environment, but also in just like policy in general, which I think we really wanted to talk about on this podcast. And so in terms of COVID, I mean, it's shaken up a lot of things that we've done in life, but I generally don't hear a lot of people talking about how it's affected the environment, just in general media and that sort of thing. So from your professional experience, uh, what do you think has changed since the pandemic? Well, it's a number of of different aspects of it. And so I'm sure probably almost all of you have noticed that we don't see very many cars on the road or buses even. And uh, and that's because due to the pandemic, we have really started transporting ourselves different places. So obviously it's not only local through uh, mass transit and uh, our cars, but also in flights. We're not flying around anywhere. Usually uh, I would be, say, on the road every like three or four weeks. Uh, I haven't traveled uh, since I went to the American Association for the Advancement Science Meeting, which is in Seattle, which was just a week before the pandemic started. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, they, they went and they were discovering the pandemic was occurring in Seattle about the same time that I was there, but but luckily we we all escaped before we, we got <laughs> yeah, caught, get out of there caught up there. Yes. Uh, so so the first thing is is that we are obviously using much less energy, and in fact there was a time there was so much oil that was available they were basically paying people to take on the oil because there's no place to store it. So that I think is in, in the sort of the midst of this overall tragedy of so many lives lost and so forth. That's probably one of the few good news aspects of it. You know, we're seeing more wildlife, you know, we're, we're seeing what it's like if we had a different lifestyle stationed at home as opposed to at our schools or offices um, and, and so forth. But of course that also comes at a cost, right? We have less interaction with people. You know, there's, there's other 
issues related to increase in domestic violence and all these other kinds of things. But it does show us from an energy standpoint that it is possible to uh, at least keep the economy going somewhat, though certainly not at its highest level, uh, without consuming as much energy as we have. And of course, less energy, particularly in a place like um, the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the Northeast, that relies heavily on fossil fuels, that makes a really big difference. And of course, it's not occurring just in the United States, but it's occurring all over the world. You know, I, I was just reading this morning, you know, mass transit uh, organizations are having a hard time now because there's also no revenue coming in. And that makes it a challenge. And there's also less jobs out there for people who are in the renewable energy industry. So that's just kind of like an, an overall what's been happening because of the pandemic and energy. And of course, everything related to energy have, you know, affects the environment and climate change. Right. So I wanted to talk about, earlier we were talking about how there's a lot less transportation going on and uh, quarantine's affected, I think, a lot of things. And I remember reading that carbon emissions are very low right now because of that. Uh, but a lot of concerns that experts have is that once the pandemic ends and once quarantine ends, it's going to shoot back up onto the trend that it's been going through. Well, yes, and that, that is undoubtedly likely to happen. You know, when we've had past recessions, for example, uh, just unrelated to COVID, but just economic downturns and so forth, you know, we see a decrease in emissions, but then we also see um, an increase, you know, once the recession comes to an end. Right. I, I do think, though, that, that some changes will be long-term. Like, we've already heard that some of the, the big uh, Silicon Valley companies are saying, yes, people, you're, we, you, the employees, can stay home for the foreseeable future. And the more that companies are able to adapt to that lifestyle, you know, the better off we are. Now, there are certain stages in our life where being at home is, and working at home is, is a good thing. Uh, I work at home. Uh, I love it. It's really, really nice. But, uh, you know, I'm also lucky, you know. I have a nice house. I don't have crowded conditions. And, um, you know, my daughter is, you know, like more your age than, you know, so, you know, so I don't have to worry about it. But, but I do think some of those lifestyle changes are likely to stay. So I think we'll get a, a bit, uh, bit different. And, and then the other uh, aspect that I think we'll see is that something that's also been coming for a long time, which is like some of the big, um, see, I don't like, really like to call them oil companies anymore. I like to say energy companies. And the reason why mm -hmm. I say that is because all these companies that we're familiar with, like BP and Exxon and, um, and so forth, you know, they all have also a big investment in renewables of different kinds. And some of this is not really necessarily because of the United States, but because the, you know, Europe and other countries are really focusing on renewable energies and making it a big uh, priority. And then we have places that like Africa, where they don't have much of an energy infrastructure. And the question is, can they uh, kind of do a leapfrog? So they don't go through as much of the oil and gas cultures we did, but go immediately to renewable energies like solar and wind. So in terms of these energy companies, uh, I remember also reading that like these energy companies you call like oil companies have been getting subsidies uh, from this. And you said they have like a stake in also renewable resources. Do you think COVID can kind of push them in that direction more or might it set them back? 
in terms of renewables? Yeah. yeah, no, I think we, you know, we just, um, I think a good example is BP, um, you know, British Petroleum. Uh, they're most known, I think, you know, probably by the younger generation because of the big oil spill, you know, that was, that was in the Gulf. But right. they, had, they had a campaign about 20 years ago that was called Beyond BP, where they said they were going to focus on renewables. But it just seemed to be more of like a, a PR kind of campaign. But mm. just, uh, but that now they have a new campaign, I think it's called like BP 2050. And um, they have announced a major financial investment to their stockholders as part of the, uh, uh, their report that came out just yesterday. So when you start seeing big dollar investments, then that's a sign that the energy companies are ready to start that transition. And, and seriously, because that's, you know, where the money flows is really, you know, where you have to have to go. And you're seeing, you know, less resistance because the subsidies that they get, they know that those might disappear someday, you know, under a different administration. That's the first thing. And they know that there are already subsidies for some of these renewable energy sources. So those kinds of actions make, you know, people who are long-term strategic thinkers, which all companies have to do, that's really leading them. They, you know, they sort of see what's happening. So also I want to talk about not just these companies getting these subsidies, but also on the other hand, uh, I've seen there's been some rollbacks of environmental policies for companies to upkeep and that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm, go I'm going to assume that this is a, a short-term phenomena that has really you know, been, been a core value of the uh, Trump administration. And of course, we don't know, you know, we're now in August, elections not until November, but those are one of those things that, you know, if um, a, another candidate gets into office, you know, those rollbacks are going to disappear. And then the second thing is, is that in the environmental world, every rollback uh, results in a lawsuit. <laughs> and that's a big, big role that the environmental groups play, uh, more than uh, the big ones, more than protest and things like that. You know, they have found over the decades that it's really these lawsuits that um, make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so any decision, and, and I should say it goes both ways, right? Industry, it's sort of, it's the same thing, right? That, so there's always these long uh, battles in the courts uh, that whenever somebody wants to change environmental policy. So I'm going to be an optimist and say <laughs> that even though these, these laws are being rolled back, um, that either they will be you know, rolled back up during a Biden administration or some lawsuit will make it so it will not really happen. But these are often the sort of underlying currents where there's a lot of Trump administration activities that people don't realize is happening because there's so much happening elsewhere. It's like every day seems, you know, to be, you know, what's happening today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and so, so these things that are long-term changes that have been that have been creeping in, you know, during the uh, Trump years. Uh, a lot of people don't really know very much about them, just because there's so much noise about other things that get far more visibility. Yeah, I really wanted to talk about that. Like, it's very hard to tell what's short term and what's long term, and what the actual effects are going to be because of. I mean, it's just very different times right now, and it's not going to be the same afterwards, and hasn't been the same before. 
And so focusing on those kind of long-term projections, what are you hopeful for that those long-term changes will be? Well, I think you know, what I learned is that that supply chain, you know, like where things come from, make a really big difference. So when China shut down, you know, because of the virus, all of a sudden we had difficulty getting all sorts of different products here in the United States that probably most of us didn't even realize came from China um, that were related to the, to the um, uh, manufacturing facilities that were there. And so I'm hoping that ideally this will lead to a reshoring which basically means that industries that we used to have in the United States that were sent to other countries would now come back to the United States. So I work a lot in say manufacturing. So hopefully that might be one long-term phenomena because this then is a business decision. You don't want to be reliable on that level of, of, of uncertainty. Right. And we had already seen some reshoring happening already and that all that relates to of course jobs and so forth that are happening. At least on the jobs front, you know, we've lost um, a lot of renewable jobs as well as oil and gas jobs, you know, during the pandemic. But hopefully the, the decrease in renewable jobs has been less than the impact on oil and gas. And hopefully those will come back because, you know, you don't necessarily, this is not really a time that you want somebody like putting solar panels on your roof. You know? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, so these are, uh, you know, and then construction jobs were stopped for a long time and so forth. But before then, you know, we were really on an, an upward climb. Now, it's still, we still have a long ways to go because, you know, we're only at about 10%. But on the bright side, we also have uh, states, some states in the United States that, that have get 50% of their energy from wind on occasion, you know, like Texas. Like most people think of Texas as an oil and gas state, but they have a, they have a big uh, portfolio in wind. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, and then the other thing is that, that wind is also very big in the middle of the country. Uh, so the, you know, farms, for example, that are, that we think about in Iowa and Illinois and so forth, uh, those are also big places for wind, Kansas. And so I remember, I think I can't try to remember how many years ago, but there's something called the production tax credit. And what it does is that it gave, a tax credit for companies that built um, wind farms and other kinds of renewable energy sources. And this is something that is one of those bills that comes up for renewal on a regular um, basis. And one time it, it was really facing kind of a roadblock in Congress and people said, well, it's going to happen or not happen because it's not really good for the industry when you have a lot of flip-flopping around. And in the end, it was, I still remember this, he was a senator from Kansas who I think might even be a governor now. And who said, yes, I support this bill. And why? Because he was from Kansas. And Kansas gets a lot of its power from wind. And they sell it. It's an it's economy. So like Carnegie Mellon, for example, last I knew, uh, was buying some of its wind energy from a wind farm in Illinois. Wow, I didn't know that. You know? So, you know, wind energy can be uh, a, a commodity. You know, there was, I was... Uh, just l listening to a talk from Ernie Moniz, who used to be Secretary of Energy during the Obama administration, and there was authorization for a big power transmission line that would go from the Midwest to the southeast of the country to supply renewable energy. You know, a lot of the renewable energy that we get now comes from Canada because they have a big hydropower 
uh, both up in the northeast as well as northwest part of, of Canada. Right. So that's what has made it easier for, say, you know, California to mm -hmm. have a source of, of clean energy to, to draw upon. Uh, because certainly California doesn't have enough water, I don't think, to do any hydropower on its own. Yeah. But it, it can get, you know, clean power from, from other locations. So, you know, energy is a commodity, and there, there, there was a lot put in place um, during the Obama years by FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, there's a lot of investment research, so we see dramatic drops in the cost of solar. Was cost effective. So it was, it was around this time, 2020, 2025, that... Uh, renewables uh, were on at, at the same price level as coal. So, you know, that's why coal is being pushed out. It's not just because, you know, coal is evil because it has all this particular matter and these things like that, but coal is losing to natural gas um, from an economic standpoint, um, you know, as well as renewables are, have been slowly, you know, creeping up um, on them. You know, so when it comes time to replace a power plant that, previously burned coal, then, you know, a company's really going to decide probably to go for natural gas and then, and then maybe a combination of natural gas and renewables. Because, you know, like I said, there is a problem there. You know, our challenge with renewables is it doesn't operate all the time. Natural gas is much more renewable. Uh, so because of that, you know, you need a combination, you know. So I'm, I'm part of the uh, group that believes in what was the policy of the Obama administration, which was an all of the above strategy. You know, you cannot rely on any one source of energy. Um, and you can't rely even just on energy sources. You have to think about, say, energy efficiency and energy storage and all these things. It's all part of a giant system. The whole deal. So, yeah, you have to, yeah, you just have to realize that, you know, we cannot, because I often see students say something, you know, like, why can't we do 100% renewables today? Well, you know, it, because it's not reliable you need something to kind of help pitch in. And although natural gas is a fossil fuel, it's methane, which has a higher impact um, on climate change. In other ones, it also is much better than coal because you don't have the particulate matter. Like in Pittsburgh, we have a high amount of pollution from particulate matter. That leads to our high rates of asthma. We have like one of the worst rates of asthma in the country uh, because of the particulate matter that's, that's in the air. Uh, so from my perspective, I always like to focus on at least the near-term problems we have. And the problem we, we have today is we still have people who have asthma issues because of the burning of coal. And it's, it's, it's much more important that we that, you know, respond to that uh, today because there's certainly ways to do it, even though natural gas definitely is not perfect. Right. And that's a very good point that you brought up because I know – uh, it's kind of hard to get into the environmental conversation, especially from people who like don't exactly want to hear it, mainly because it's kind of hard to see exactly how it affects you when you mm -hmm. compare it to like the economy where it's like, oh, this is affecting my wages. That's something that affects people and it's very visible to them. But the environment, you don't get to see it as blatantly. You know, like I, I was an air pollution engineer for the state of Texas for five years. I was a field engineer. I went to like a million different kinds of facilities when I was a field engineer and, you know, and this was in South Texas where there's giant refineries, chemical plants and, and so forth. And it, the most dangerous pollutants that were in the like 18 county region I covered were actually pollutants you can't see. Uh, they were hazardous air pollutants of things like vinyl chloride and things like that. So oftentimes when we think about 
pollution. We're thinking about the old days where all the smoke was coming out. Most of the time when you see what you think is pollution coming out of a smokestack, it's probably just steam. You can always tell because it'll kind of like disappear as opposed to like leave a pail of, uh, a trail of uh, particulates, you know? So I think that's, that's part of the problem is, you know, we really can't, can't see the um, level of pollution that we already have. Uh, you have to actually take the time to like look at a monitor and, and see, you know, what the state of affairs is. I wanted to go back to a conversation we were having earlier on, we were mentioning about renewable energy and uh, kind of tying into the economy, because I know also it seems almost like in politics, there's kind of like environment versus economy and they're kind of on different sides. But when you were speaking, uh, you made it seem like that's not the case all the time, or that doesn't have to be the case, at least. Right. So uh, a good example uh, of that is, you know, back, you know, we used to have, well, we still have a problem from pollution from vehicles, but it used to be even worse than it is uh, today. And uh, so laws were put in place to reduce the pollution um, from cars. Uh, like I, you know, I, I went to college in Southern California, and obviously, you know, there's a lot of pollution there, primarily from vehicles, right? Right. And so there were a lot of objections at the time, uh, you know, because of the uh, impact it might have in the economy. The reality is, is that when we do the analysis that we do to, uh, to you know, to figure out whether or not a policy action is worth doing, one of the things we do, which is required by law, by the way, is a benefit-cost analysis. So you're looking at the benefit of you know, a decrease in, say, uh, the impact of, of air pollution on human health relative to the cost it, it would be for, um, for, to regulate vehicles. And what, what the benefit-cost analysis typically don't take into account is uh, innovation. You know, so as engineers, you know, like we love innovation. And these companies, once they were required to do it, they were able to innovate and the costs were not near as high as they were projected to be and things were not, were not that bad. So it's one of those things where people think that just because we're protecting the environment means that it's going to have an adverse impact on the economy. But from the studies that we've done of past environmental regulations, that, that's not you know, really the case, at least from a societal point of view. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have coal miners who lose our jobs and that we have to worry about them and the impact on the coal communities. Uh, but, we, but we can also invest resources to help those communities, which is, which is what we do today. So it's always, um, it's, you know, it's always a challenge, but the, the impact on the economy tends to be much more isolated. And then with innovation, we can, we can really make a difference. Like I'm working, now in West Virginia, one of, one of the questions that I'm really interested in is, can we get more hydropower in West Virginia? Because obviously West Virginia is known for all these wonderful rivers and, and so forth, uh, but they haven't necessarily taken hydropower as seriously because they've always had as a base the coal industry. Now the coal industry is declining, not necessarily again because of environmental regulations, but because we have now have cheap natural gas because of hydraulic fracturing. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of dams. Is there a way to make those into like, you know, mini hydro power plants, not like big ones like Hoover Dam, but smaller ones 
that can maybe service communities. Some of those communities might not even have power at this point because there are, you know, you know, we assume everybody in the United States has electric power, but there are places in rural parts of our country that don't have electric power, um, that don't have access to water. Right. So what, and these, those are things that I, I hope that the innovation will lead us out of these, this era um, into a new era that, that's going to be uh, cleaner. Uh, the, the other example I always like to give is electric vehicles. Like people think it's almost the opposite in this case. So people think electric vehicles are like wonderful, wonderful things, but it's all based on where the electricity comes from. You know, if you, if your electricity is coming from a coal plant, uh, then, you know, it's not beneficial to buy an electric vehicle. Right. What's the, what's the point? Yeah. So, you know, before you invest in electric vehicle, you, you need to know where your, where your electricity is coming from. And that information is actually very easily available. There's something called the Energy Information Administration. You can type in your state and it'll show you exactly where your energy comes from. And that's, that's just something that, uh, that, that people should really think about. You know, we often see people do take actions that if they really knew what was happening behind the scenes, uh, would not necessarily make as much sense as they think they do. And so I think it goes both ways. So, so industry is sort of the same thing. Industry doesn't think about innovation necessarily. Um, and, you know, as a, as a way to you know, sort of get out of it, because of course innovation hasn't happened yet. It's also on the environmental side where sometimes people think they're taking actions that are environmentally wise when they really don't fully understand, you know, where their energy is coming from and what the challenges are for say renewable energy and why, you know, like, why don't we have it today? Well, there, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why, but we have been making slow but steady progress. And, um, you know, I think the, uh, when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I, I worked on a report with the, uh, some of the faculty who were, um, renewable energy experts. And they basically said, you know, we can have say 30% of our power from renewable energy, even, even today with the current technology and the systems, if there's the, the will to do it. Uh, and as I said, there's some places, some States that, you know, like when the wind is blowing the right way and so forth, <laughs> they'll even hit 50%. Uh, but that's still a long way from our overall reliance, which is like over 80% right. um, on, uh, fossil fuels. I think that's very interesting you bring that up because it's, I feel like in the media, it seems like a cut and dry issue and it's really not. It's much more complicated, obviously, as you've stated. Uh, I want to talk briefly about the environmental groups you were talking about before. Um, do you happen to know what they think about just the pandemic in general, how that might be affecting it, what they're currently doing? I think, uh, Again, I, I'm not involved, you know, with environmental groups myself, but, but I, my understanding is really, the, the, from what I read and so forth, they're very much focused on what you were talking about earlier, which is like the rollback environmental regulations, where a lot's happening under the radar that is adverse um, from an, an uh, environmental standpoint. And because it does not get the visibility, you know, they, they try to heighten the visibility but at least, you know, file uh, court actions and things like that. I would say a good number of the major environmental groups are full of lawyers whose, whose job is to try to, to stop things happening. And that's important. Like, that's also the case of things that were related to civil rights. A lot of it was won through the courts. That's why Supreme Court decisions 
uh, and who's on the Supreme Court is so important um, is because a lot of our major decisions uh, come from there when there are these big disagreements between uh, you know, those who are like say for or, for or against these activities. Uh, I think uh, most on, on, the, uh, on COVID-19, I think the main thing that the message that I've heard is this is just, you know, short term. <laughs> Don't celebrate this because it'll go away. I, I, right. I've heard a lot of that. And then there's also the other issue, which is the loss of jobs. The energy uh, workforce um, th that focuses on renewable energy and particularly energy efficiency, which is, a, which is the biggest actually source of, of clean energy jobs. You know, a lot of those jobs are, are, are not really happening at the moment uh, because people uh, don't want to let people inside their homes or they don't have the money because they've lost their job to invest in major projects. And that is, that is also uh, a challenge. And I think the other aspect of it is, you know, there were supposed to be these big climate change meetings, things like that, and the momentum was going pretty strong. Right, uh, and, and then COVID. Right, and then COVID happened and all those disappear. Now, uh, so I was, actually for the past couple of days, uh, I've been part of this uh, UN meeting, a United Nations meeting, which has been uh, focused on the uh, SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And those, of course, don't cover just the, you know, like what we think of as the environment, but basic, you know, problems and all sorts of things like poverty and, um, uh, you know, water in the sense of not only just having clean water, but do we have water for our hospitals? Like I, I was surprised to learn as I was, as I've been looking at some of this UN data that like 20% of our uh, hospitals don't have running water. Wow. I know it's, it's, it's really very surprising and that's, that's better than it was. So how can we prevent COVID, you know, when we don't have any water, much less clean water and at places that are medical facilities in, in, in a good portion of the world. And so this meeting was, I, I found very interesting because uh, it's one of these meetings that would have been done in person some, somewhere, someplace, but instead it was over four, uh, basically half days. Uh, all virtual with people from all over the world wow. and there were regional meetings and, and, and things like that. Uh, my job, I was a speaker uh, at the session that was focused on uh, looking at the, the intersection of um, uh, like IT kinds of things like artificial intelligence and things like that and thinking about uh, issues related to cybersecurity and, and those issues related uh, to the, the sustainable development goals. So I made a, a pitch, which is uh, for an international SDG, being sustainable development goals, uh, science and engineering policy fellowship program. So I've been involved with a lot of different fellowship programs, and I felt that this was an area where we needed one. So my concept is, is that like when we have something like, say, this clean water issue that I mentioned at healthcare facilities, we can put together a team of uh, people from scientists, engineers, you know, health professionals, uh, you know, even people from the arts uh, to try to solve whatever the problem is. Or like another problem is like misinformation, disinformation. You know, so in my imagination, we could get these teams together. So be people, so be younger people like yourself that were from 
um, different countries, plus people in the local country, uh, the local uh, local area. Let's just say, pick a country in Africa, for example, mm-hmm. and you know they would collect data as to the sources of this uh, misinformation, disinformation on COVID, say, and then uh, they would develop by analyzing the data, they could figure out the sources and they could develop plans to respond to that and then work with the communities to, de- to sort of co-create a plan to stop the misinformation. So uh, I, it got a, an amazingly positive reception. Uh, the, the, the first reaction from the person who was the moderator, who was a, a professor at George Mason was, you know, it's so nice to hear something optimistic because all we have is doom. And doom. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think a, uh, you know, a fellowship of, you know, like people spend a year or two working in these teams, um, trying to solve, you know, some of these environmental problems and things like that uh, can make a real, a real difference in terms of the like innovations and so forth that, that are out there. Like there's ways to collect, I found, collect water from the air and then pull that together and then use it. Like there's a, you know, so you can, uh, there's one actually in West Virginia now from that this uh, NGO non-governmental organization has put in for the areas that are without water in West Virginia. Uh, and they basically use solar panels, they collect the water and they gather the water and so that people who come to the food bank there can also get water. You know, water can be pretty expensive if right, you right. bought, right? Uh, you know, and, uh, so the same thing is happening in Africa, and not only in Africa, it's, it's kind of like this big kind of net, mm. and they have the dew and so forth that's been collected, and then they collect all that water to serve the needs of you know the village and so forth that are there. So um, I always I always have great hope in innovation, and I just think we need some uh, people power to get it to happen. I I, I, I really think the technology is there uh, in in most cases, but mm. you know we just don't have the, the human resources or the financial resources to make it happen. Right. And so I guess that ties in a little bit to our last question. We're kind of running out on time. So to all the people out there that are listening in, what would your advice be to them if they want to get involved in, in the environmental community right now? Well, I always think that it's, that this is part of uh, your, your best part of a group um, effort. And you know, as a group, there's all sorts of uh, things you can do. You know, one of is, and we've we've talked a lot. <clears throat> excuse me, a lot talked about visibility. Mm-hmm. So, one aspect is to bring visibility to environmental issues that 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 don't get much in the regular uh, media because we're so focused on other issues. And so that means, uh, you know, like writing articles and writing letters to the editor and op eds and writing to uh, you know, policymakers, so that they know that you're out there and, and you're watching them. Like, you know, like we've talked about this rollback, for example, but has anybody taken the time to like write a letter to, to their member of Congress to say, hey, I don't like this happening? Because they may know it's happening, they may not know it's happening, but at least if enough letters go forth, then, then there's, there's some information. So when, it, when the time comes and, you know, people are ready to, to roll back, roll back to what they were, <laughs> regulation, <laughs> as opposed to roll them down, so to speak. Um, right. You know, then, you know, they have, they know that the people that they represent support them. 
you know, on, on this uh, action. Uh, so there's, so the first is I think make your voice heard. Uh, the second part is to be part of, you know, one of the many uh, groups that are out there, which are often through your discipline, disciplinary society, if you're in the science and engineering world, uh, you know, where you can um, also participate in, in those kind of activities to, you know, so if you, if you get say, uh, Say the, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers as, as an example, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what's their position statement on these environmental issues? Do they have one? Don't they have one? Uh, what can you do to encourage them to take action so that, that they also have a position? And, you, and so you're multiplying the power of your group with these other groups. Uh, then also there's things you can often do in, uh, you know, your... Uh, local area, which is like, for example, just getting people to vote. You know, we, we actually have an amazingly small number of population of, of sort of college student age uh, folks who vote. Right. And, uh, you know, we have a major election coming up uh, right now. Like if you live in Pennsylvania and probably, you know, like many other states, you need to take the time to fill out the form to get your mail-in ballot. I just did it like a couple of days ago. Uh, I told my daughter, 21, to do the same. Now, did she do it? Probably not. But, you know, that's, that in the end is, is the most important aspect is that, you know, if you want policymakers who support the environment, you have to vote. You can't just complain about the policies without taking the time to vote. And not only voting yourself, but encouraging others and reminding them, hey, did you know that you have to take, you have to fill out this form to get a mail-in ballot. And then you have to fill it in and mail it back. Well, before a deadline, because this year there's been a lot of shenanigans with the postal service. Right. And they're worried that some, some of these um, ballots will not get in by, the, by that time. So in the end, you know, part of being part of the process is, you know, voting and then also appearing at, you know, meetings where the environment's discussed, like, you know, your local city council meeting, as an example. Right. You know, how many even know, do you know who your member of Congress is? Do you know who your senator is? Do you know who your members are in your state's House and Senate? You know? right. uh, do you know who the Secretary of Energy is? You know, do you, you know, do you know who the head of the Environmental Protection Agency is? Well, you got to know your policymakers and you got to make your voice um, heard. Uh, you can't just complain to each other. Right. Um, well, thank you for your insight today, talking to us. Uh, that is the end of our first episode here. If you'd like to see more, we, you can check it out on our website. We also have some social media on Instagram and the Facebook page. You can find us at, at pandemic.ecopolicy. And once again, I just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Stein, for being here. And See you next time.